0: Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight. It's exciting to be in God's house, God's presence, and have an opportunity to worship Him and, you know, hear from God's Word and to allow God to engage with us in a very powerful way. I'd like us to stand tonight. I'm just going to lead us in prayer, and then you'll be seated for a few minutes afterwards as we engage in the Scripture tonight. But let's just pray. Uh, I I am so convinced that as we gather week by week that God wants to do a powerful work. This last Tuesday night in our Alpha course, we had five people give their lives to Christ. And so, you know, God is just working in a powerful way in the life of our church community. God is touching people physically. We've uh, had amazing reports of uh, God doing special works of grace in people's lives. And so I just want to keep encouraging us. Amen? Uh, and just to realize God is at work and I want to be a part of what God is doing, right? So let's ask his uh, presence tonight to really speak into our lives. And so Father, as we come to you, I believe that you want to speak into each heart and you want to encourage us, you want to challenge us, you want to stretch us, you want to empower us. Lord, we just pray tonight that there will be a transaction between ourselves and you And Lord, as we leave this place, uh, may our fears, may our frustrations, uh, may the areas of defeat in our life be transformed into peace and joy and victory and hope and anticipation and excitement of the good things that you want to do in our lives and then through our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I want to just encourage us a little bit tonight where uh, I, I started a series, a kind of a little mini-series on the Beatitudes. It's probably one of the most famous texts of Scriptures. A lot of times you'll see it scripted out in calendars and all kinds of different ways. And it's the, the sayings of Jesus, the blessed are those. And so I've been kind of showing that they have a progression to them. Let me just uh, look at a story that was written by Jess Mood. It's an older story. Jess was... Uh, uh, a person that was leading a Bible study in a very upscale part of California. As a matter of fact, uh, he he was actually doing it in the home of Barbara Homyard. And you say, "Well, who's Barbara Homyard?" Most of us probably don't know who she is. But how many ever heard of Champion Spark Plugs? Anybody heard of that? Well, they made a lot of money. I'll just say that much. And so these people were extremely wealthy and kind of like the socialite class. And so they had this Bible study, and they'd have interesting guests pop in from time to time. And on this particular day, Princess Alexandria of Greece brought Rose Kennedy to the class. How many know who Rose Kennedy happens to be? Anybody know that? Rose Kennedy is the mother of John F. Kennedy. The president. And so she was there. This was when she was a lot younger. And she came... Well, no, sorry. This was when she's later. But she's going to tell the story when she's younger. Anyway, she comes to the class and just decides to, you know, shift gears and start talking about something other than what was on his slate that day. And he was talking about basically how to address the issue of death in your life. And he talked about how some people try to fight it and run from it and all the rest of it. How many you know death probably catches up to all of us sooner or later? It's kind of a scary topic, but it is the truth, you know? And so he eventually talked about we have to make a deal with God in order to address the problem of death. And so after the the Bible study, Rose Kennedy came up to him and whispered in his ear, and she just said to him, you know... Uh, I made that deal with God a long time ago. And then she began to tell her story. When she was first married, young socialite, got married to this very strong-willed personality, Joseph Kennedy is very strong-willed. And they're kind of like the elite hobnobbing with all these affluent, wealthy people in the United States. She said, We were expecting our, our first child and we were so excited. You know, as young parents and you're looking forward to the day when you have a child, and, and that day came and they had a beautiful little girl and they were so ecstatic, you know. Uh, it was just one of those great moments in life. And then she said, It wasn't long until we realized that something was wrong with their little daughter. And so they took her to the doctor and he confirmed their worst fears that she was actually mentally impaired. And, could not, and there was nothing that could be done for her. And so she said at that moment, anger grew in my heart. How many know we can easily get angry at God? And so he, uh, Jess tells us this. He said, anger grew, she said, within my heart. And she said to herself, how could God do such a thing to this child? See, that's the first... You know, a lot of people. You know, why is there suffering? Why does God allow this? And then she thought, well, then why is God doing this to me? You know, you know, it's it's one thing when God's doing it to somebody else, but why is He picking on me? Like, why this? You know, why me? And I think a lot of times in our lives, we probably ask that question: Why is this happening to me? Just like Rose was extremely upset. Upset about it, she says, and she began withdrawing. She turned her back on her husband, her closest friends. She turned her back on God. You know, she grew up in a, in a faith community, but she just shut herself off. She just withdrew. That's how she was handling this pain in her life. And she said, I became a recluse. Uh, the bad thing was, not only was she withdrawing from her child, so was her husband. Her husband. And so the poor little infant, you know, is now having this love being withdrawn from this child. And uh, so one evening, she said a major event was in their community, and they they were planning on going out. But she was in such a a, a terrible state of mind; she was in a rage. She was just ready to come unglued. And and uh, both her and her husband agreed it's probably better not to go because she said, I didn't know if I could keep it in. I didn't know if I would just explode and make a scene. And so they decided to stay in. And, and, uh, and there I was just kind of boiling with resentment. And there was also in their home a beautiful maid, lovely lady, uh, and she could sense, she said, this anger just taking over my life. And she said, you know, excuse me, Mrs. Kennedy, But I've been watching you these last few weeks, and I love you so very much, and I hate to see you destroy your life. And I'm going to say this as gently as I know how. Mrs. Kennedy, she said, you will never be happy until you make your heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. That's an interesting way of expressing it, isn't it? But in other words, she's saying, unless Christ comes in and rules and reigns in your heart, you're just never going to address this thing that you're dealing with in a proper way. And she said, I was so livid and angry for her saying that, I fired her on the spot. You know, she just lashed out at her. But that night, she couldn't sleep. You know, she was haunted by the image of this beautiful lady speaking you know, so graciously and tenderly. And she said, I could see the radiance on her countenance. And she said, you know, and then she says, I was haunted by those words that kept me up at night where, you know, basically I needed to make, you know, Christ bring him into my life. She says, I kept hearing those words, you'll never be happy until you make your heart a manger where Christ may be born. And she said, you know, I grew up in a, in a in a Christian background, she said, but I had I had no real contact, real close contact with God. And so I, she said, I knelt down by my bed and I prayed, Dear God, make my heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. And I tell you, a fresh divine entry came into my life, and there was born in me a passion and a love, not only for my own child, but for mentally impaired children. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So... Christ entered her life and just poured love in her heart towards those that were so less fortunate. And she just poured out her love towards her daughter. Isn't that an amazing thing, what God can do in transforming our hearts? And oh, by the way, she said, I rehired that lovely maid, and she worked with us until she passed away. So that's good news. you know. So what had happened? There was actually a powerful spiritual exchange that occurred in Rose Kennedy's life as she prayed that night. Her heart was changed. And that is so powerful. You know, the real condition of our lives is the condition of our heart. And you and I are looking at every aspect of life through that lens. Where our hearts are at tonight, we're seeing how life is really being reflected through us. And we're, we're taking in that information through the lens of the condition of our heart. And Jesus spoke to the heart issue in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you really study that passage, you know, we talk at the first part, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. He's not talking about those who are financially poor. He's talking about those who recognize their poverty apart from God. And because of that, they do something about it. The next verse says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I, and I preached on this. I said, that's not so much that we're mourning over the loss of a loved one, but that we're mourning over the fact that we're broken and in sin and in need of God. And when we come to that end of ourselves, like rose kennedy did and we open our hearts to christ all of a sudden god's grace and comfort comes pouring into our lives but let me just skip fast forward here to verse eight where it says blessed uh are the pure in heart for they will see god isn't a great text blessed are the pure in heart you know that word blessed actually means happy this is the true state of happiness that comes into our lives when you and i are pure in heart The Bible says we will see God, but I think this is one of the most misunderstood of all of the Beatitudes, because we don't really understand what Jesus is really communicating here sometimes. And so tonight I want to take a look at this and unpack the meaning of this little Beatitude that Jesus expressed to us. So I think there's three things that we need to understand. First of all, we need to understand what does it mean to be pure in heart, okay? And how can we become pure in heart, and eventually, what does it mean to see God, so let's take a look at what does it mean to be pure in heart. First of all, you know, one of the things that I think we've misunderstood sometimes in our you know we have kind of a philosophical grid. You know the Greeks have influenced our psychology a little bit. We al- almost have a dualism, and we almost you know have this idea that our minds and our emotions they're, they're they're separated. You know what I mean? And so we talk about our intellect and we talk about our emotions. But the Hebrew people didn't understand it that way. That's not that's not a biblical understanding. Actually, uh, in Hebrew psychology, the heart is the center of the person, the seat of personal will, feeling, and thinking. So when you when you when you're reading the Bible is talking about our hearts. It's talking about our essence. It's talking about the whole part of us. It's talking about our emotions and our mind. And I, I'm going to just say this: most of our decision making is effect is driven by our emotions, far more than we want to understand. We're not as logical as we think we are. You know, we we operate out of how we feel a lot more than we realize. We make a lot of decisions out of that quadrant, and I'm, you'll see in a few minutes as I bring that up why that is. So what does Jesus mean by purity of heart? You know, one of the great preachers of a past generation, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I really like him. And he said this, It is generally agreed that the word has, at any rate, two main meanings. And one of them is that it means to be without hypocrisy. It means to be single. Now, single-mindedness. It's it's, it's this idea there's a unification going on inside of our soul. He said the pureness of heart means without fold, it means to be open, nothing hidden, you can describe it as sincerity, I probably would use the words today, authentic, you know, being real, there's no duplicity, there's no hiddenness, you know, in computer language, it's what you see is what you're getting, kind of that stuff, and how many recognize it's 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 so refreshing to meet a person, they don't have a hidden agenda. You know they're just who they are. They're not putting on you know any sort of uh, pretense with you. You know you're just seeing an authentic person. This is there's there's a, a a cleanness about it. You know if I was to say to you with a can of molasses, this is pure molasses. What would I be meaning? I would be meaning that there is nothing added to it. It's it's not mixed in any ways. It's not diluted in any ways. There's a a sense that this is the 100% molasses that we're going to get, right? And that's, I think, what he's trying to get across here, this pureness of heart. Um, Probably one of the best definitions of purity is given in Psalm 86, verse 11. You know, the psalmist has a very unique prayer. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. Now think about what he's doing. Why is he praying that prayer? Because I think a lot of times, as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones brings out, there is a battle going on within us, you know. And Romans chapter 7 is very interesting. Theologians argue about, is this Paul's expression before he was a Christian, or is this Paul's experience after he was a Christian? And I'm going to argue it's both. I, you know, I think in his case, he wanted to do what God wanted him to do, but he just wasn't capable of doing it. Isn't that interesting? But... Isn't it true in all of our lives, if you have a desire to please God, I'm going to tell you something, that's a God thing. That tells me that you're in a good place. How many here you say, you know, I really have a desire to please God. There's something inside of me that wants to please God. Anybody could say that. That's me. I'm going to raise my hand. I, I want to please God. There's something inside of me that wants to please God. But then, How many would be willing to acknowledge there's another side of me that says, you know, there's there's other parts of me that say, well, yeah, but there's other things I'd like to do, and sometimes I recognize they're not the right thing to do. Anybody struggle with that? That's called temptation, right? And so part of me wants to do the right thing, and part of me wants to do the wrong thing, and there's kind of a battle that goes on in my mind. And, you know, a lot of times as Christians, I think this is what we do. We go, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to entertain the thought. You know, some of people are just, you know, we're kind of fooling around with our thinking. It's kind of, you know, we're not doing it, but we're thinking the wrong thing. You know, like, for example, you know, I'm really not happy with this person. I really want to take them out. I, may, I, I really want to get even, but I know that I can't do that because the Bible says I need to forgive them, but that's how I feel, right? And so I'm dealing with this this, this different aspect of myself, Okay. And what I'm going to try to explain to us is it's so important to, number one, you know, let's, let's be realistic with our emotions. Those are real. How many say that's true? You, you cannot deny that you feel a certain way. I think a lot of us would like to think, you know, i got the wrong emotions here, you know. But I have to address those emotions. So how do I address them? I don't pretend they don't exist. That's wrong. That's a problem. A lot of people kind of shove their emotions down. No, no, don't do that. I think we have to say to God, I have these feelings, God, and I know they're not right. Okay, number one. And I know what your word says and I'm going to act on what your word says even though I feel like this. But you know what so often we do? We actually act on how we feel. And it gets us in all kinds of trouble. And all I'm saying is, it's not that we're denying our emotions. It's actually that I I know what God's telling me to do in this situation, and I'm choosing to do it, even though my emotions right now are telling me maybe the very opposite. But at this moment, I'm going to do the right thing. And you know what I've discovered over time? If you keep doing the right thing long enough, your emotions start changing. Isn't that interesting? Your emotions start climbing up to the way you're behaving. How many have discovered that? That's the way it works. And so I'm encouraging us not to just react to things and all the rest of that stuff that we do. Now, it's interesting that James talks about this. He says, this is how you resist temptation. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. I've actually just described how you do that. You're saying, God, I'm going to do what you say. That's submitting to God. And eventually, the emotional side, the frustrating side, the, the sinful side of our emotions sometimes, they get... We get caught up in stuff there. Eventually, they, the, the enemy's pressure in our life diminishes. It weakens. Isn't that beautiful? And we find ourselves strengthened. And I've discovered one thing about sin. You know, when you when you do the wrong thing, how many of you afterwards, you always feel bad about it? Does anybody know that? You always feel haunted by that. you know. And I'm suggesting to us, when we do the right things, we don't have regret. We go, oh, thank God, I did the right thing. Or, you know, you come into a situation and you were going to just maybe blast somebody because you had it in your mind what they were doing, and then you don't do that. Instead, you just ask a question and say, you know, I just don't understand what's happening here. And then you give them a chance to explain. And then you go, thank God, I didn't open my mouth. Anybody do that? You know, just thank God I kept my mouth shut. Just asked the question, and I had it totally. I totally misunderstood what I was observing. Or some of you say, that's an unfortunate, Pastor. I don't even do that. I just walk in, b- guns blazing. And it's usually a terrible one. Afterwards, I got to pick up the pieces, you know? I'm just telling you, think before you speak, right? Uh, anyways. Then he says here, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And what? Purify your hearts, you double minded. So the problem is, is that we're vacillating between two positions. And so that's why the psalmist prays that incredible prayer. Lord, Help me not to be double-minded. Help me not to be one way and then another way. Help me to be single-minded. Help me to be steadfast. Help me to do the right thing and then let my emotions catch up to the right thing. That's what I'm, I'm seeing here. So let me move on maybe to the second point of understanding regarding purity of heart, and it's just freedom from sin's defilement. Do you recognize that sin defiles us? And sin takes us captive. And you know, I, I've been using this little statement, you know, you know the, the society today, they want freedom to sin. That's everything about our culture wants freedom to sin. Can I just tell you something? There's no freedom in sin. That's a myth. What you get is, you get addictions. You get bondage in sin the goal is to be free from sin, right? And that is very difficult because as human beings, we don't have the power to be free from sin. We need the power of the living Christ inside of us to enable us to be free from sin. But let's take a look at the sin issue. As a matter of fact, Revelation tells us that if we're not, we're not pure in heart, we're not going to see God. Now, we've got to stop playing this game, especially in the church, where we go, you know, it's okay to sin, and it's no big thing. I'm going, yeah, it is a big thing, you know, because the goal is that you and I become like Christ, and there's a purity of heart. It says here, nothing impure will ever enter it. Now, I'm not speaking of God's presence in the heavenly city. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So God is, God is the one that's creating this this situation. You know, God's a holy God. Nothing unholy is going to come into his presence. So we have to deal with our impurity. We have to we have to allow God to address the impurities in our life. As a matter of fact, you know, Paul, the apostle, living in the first century Rome was, can I just tell you, it was vile and evil. You know, if you think our culture is evil, this is nothing compared to first century Rome. It was terrible. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and by the way, the Corinthians was the Las Vegas of the world, you know. What what, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, you know? Right? This was a bad place. And so Paul's writing, and he says this Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So let's not minimize what the scriptures are teaching. I think we're doing that a lot today. We're trying to bring the scriptures down to our experience, and later on we're going to be challenged to bring our experience up to God's standard. It says here Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. I could just add women who have sex with women. You know, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's how many say that's strong. Oh my God, that's pretty strong. I'm not saying it; God's saying it. We can dispute it. And here's my big problem with our culture today. You know, we'll say to people, "Well, you know, you know, you're battling with addictions, so it's not your fault." Well, yeah, yeah, it is your fault. You made a decision somewhere and now you're struggling with the consequences. And so we're trying to minimize the consequences that people are experiencing, but we're not helping people. We think we're being really loving. We're just, oh, that's, that's just a disease, you know. Listen, if, if alcoholism was just strictly a disease, then why is God keeping them out of heaven? That's my question. He's making us somewhat responsible for our behavior here. I'm a big advocate of personal responsibility. You see, we're living in a culture where nobody wants responsibility. Isn't that true? So all I'm saying here is real simple. Look, God's the one that's setting the standard. I'm not setting the standard, and I think we're not helping people by saying, well, it's okay to do that stuff. You're fine. We accept that. I'm going, no, no. That's unhealthy for that individual. How many think living in addiction is a healthy lifestyle? Anybody here want to raise your hand and say, that's a healthy lifestyle? Everyone here is kind of in agreement. That's probably not a healthy lifestyle. Wouldn't it be a lot better to say there is a power greater than our sin that can set us free from it? How many people think it would be amazing to see people who are struggling with addictions being liberated from them? Well, that's what the gospel does, folks. And it's a hope-filled message. That's not that God is against these people. Listen to what Paul says. I like the next verse. If we just stop here, that would be bad news. But see, I'm preaching goodness. news. So here's the next verse. And that is what some of you were. Now, I'm not a genius in grammar, but I can just say this is past tense. Anybody figure that out? He says, that's where you were. But he says, but you were what? Washed. You were sanctified. That word sanctified means you've been set apart for God's purposes. You were justified. I love that word. That's a theological word that means when God forgives you, it's just as if you've never done it. Woo! The penalty has been wiped clean. You are as white as snow. As a matter of fact, the good news says this. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Wow, this is what I used to be, but because of Christ, this is what I am. That is hope, folks, for a world that is broken and doesn't know the answers. Well, it's okay to keep doing that. No, it's not. It's killing them. Come on. Let's be honest about this. Okay. I get—I You know, I get a little worked up. Let me move on to my second point. How can we become pure in heart? Isn't that a great question? Jesus says, Only the pure in heart are going to see God. He says, How can we become pure in heart? I'm glad you asked that question. We kind of hinted on that last verse. It said it in that last verse, actually. We become pure in heart because Christ makes us pure in heart. Isn't that lovely? Let's read 1 John 1.6. He says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness. Now, darkness is a moral term here, speaking of we're walking in sin. We lie, and we do not live out the truth. So what is he saying here? As Christians, we can't just be perpetually living a lifestyle of sin and think that we have fellowship with God. We're just deceiving ourselves. Okay? You know the nature of sin is self-deception. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 states that. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Do you know what I love about walking with Jesus? There's a lot of things I'm doing wrong. Every day I'm doing stuff wrong. But you know what? I'm walking with Jesus and he's purifying me. He's purifying me. He's transforming me. He's changing me. What an amazing journey to walk with God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? God's purifying us. That's why we have purity of heart. If we claim to be without sin, so now we say, now this is different. Now, he's basically this is now we're shifting. One's a lifestyle of sin. Now we're saying, but if we say we never sin, well we're deceiving ourselves again. The truth is not in us. How many know? Every once in a while we mess up. Anybody here can acknowledge that every once in a while we mess up. Isn't that true? So now what do we do with that mess up? we got to come back to Jesus. If we confess our sins, we stop pretending they're not sin. See, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Do you know denial of sin is the worst thing we can possibly do? Why don't we just own up and say, you know, I'm guilty. Jesus says, okay, I can do something with that. But if I walk around going, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm totally okay. I never sin. I never do anything wrong. You know, you're never going to change because you're perfect. You know, but come on now, let's be realistic. We're probably not quite as perfect as we think we are. You know, no amens there. That's true. Okay, if we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How many say, thank God for that? Man, he just works at doing a mighty work in our life. You know, The book of Hebrews reminds us, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So really, what am I talking about tonight? I'm talking about purity of heart is actually what holiness is all about. You go, well, what is holiness, Pastor? Holiness is to be, you know, when we say God is holy, we're saying God is other than what we are. And God is without sin. He's not contaminated. He's 100%, you know? And when you and I start pursuing holiness, what we're saying is, I'm moving towards what God is like. I'm moving towards becoming like him. Isn't the goal of the Christian life to be like Christ? You know, God is calling me to be Christ-like, to be more and more like Jesus. That's what should be occurring in my life. You know, and I think in holiness preaching, not only do we turn from sin, but we must turn to God. Can I just say this? Whatever your desire is, is going is to define your life. So what is your desire? You know, a lot of times people go, Pastor, I don't have time for that. No, what you're telling me is that's not my priority. That's all you're telling me. Whatever it is that you want to do, you do. It's amazing. You know, let's be honest with ourselves. You know, I think of what Jesus said, and I know it's taken in a context, but think about what he's saying here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if God is my delight and desire, what's going to happen? I'm going to begin to pursue God. And that's going to affect my whole life. It's going to change how I live. It's going to change how I think. It's going to move me in different circles. God is going to be able to direct my path. But, you know, if my goal and my treasure is something like, you know, I have a totally different goal in life. I want to be successful. I want to be famous. I want to be rich. How many know those are taking you in a direction? Isn't that true? Yeah. So you got to sit down and say, what is where, where is my treasure? What is it that I aspire to? What's the aim of my life? What's the goal of my life? And then it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Isn't that true? If you've got problems in your eyes, you're in darkness. You know, if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, we have a culture today, it's all about the money. You know, and I'm saying, it should be all about God. And I'm saying, don't sweat the money. You say, why? Because if you put God first, He'll make sure all of your needs are taken care of. That's His obligation to us as as, as kids. His kids. You know? But I want to just uh, share a thought with you here that I think is really powerful. How many of you have ever read the book Reese Howell's Intercessor? Anybody ever read this book? Okay, let me just... And that's neat. It's great to see younger people here. That's pretty heavy stuff, by the way. Do you know, Reese Howells was actually a Bible school uh, principal in Wales during World War II. And really powerful things began to happen. These guys were really seeking God. And I want to just take a couple of clips from the book to give you an idea, because I think a lot of times when we talk about purity, we're focusing in on sin. But it says there... We felt the Holy Spirit had been a real person to us before. As far as we knew, we had received him, and some of us had known much of his operations in and through our lives. In other words, if you're a child of God, obviously the Holy Spirit's in your life. And he's he's acknowledging that. But then he says this, In the light of his purity, they're seeking God now, it was not so much sin we saw in us, but self. We saw pride and self motives underlying everything we had ever done. In other words, a lot of times in our lives, you know, we we, we say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, Pastor. I'm not really sinning. But that's not even the issue. The issue is how much of ourselves are in the road. Because I think we struggle sometimes because we have an agenda in our lives. And I want want you to just, I'm going to throw something out at you here to give you an idea what I'm really rattling about. You know, when I get up in the morning, you know, what should be the first thought in our minds? The Lord. That's exactly right. And you know, we should get up and say, Wow, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. You see, I'm telling my soul, This is what we're going to do today. You see, some of us get out of bed and go, Wow, it's Monday. I got to go to work. You know, drag. You know, we've already set the temple of how our attitude is going to be. Are you guys catching on? You know, we're actually defining our attitudes a lot more than we realize. But, you know, the scriptures teach, you know, this should be our attitude. Then you think of the Lord's Prayer. You know, they said, Jesus, would you please teach us how to pray? Now, you think of this prayer. He starts out, our Father. That's neat. Okay, God's my Father. Who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. That means I'm hallowing, worshiping God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, if I got up in the morning and said, okay, Lord, this is your day. What are we doing today? What's on your agenda? But you know what I noticed? How many have ever had those days that you've gone out the door and you've had a kind of a game plan in your mind and everything's going sideways on you? I mean, nothing is working. It's just frustrating. Anybody ever have a day like that where everything that could go wrong has gone wrong? Anybody have a day like that? And the more that day is moving along, what's usually happening inside of us? How many here can honestly admit you say I'm getting more frustrated, more irritated, more annoyed. I'm just going, I can't believe that. I can't hardly wait for this day to end. Anybody have that experience? Anybody? Know? Oh, there's a few of you willing to admit that, <laughs> you know. But let me ask you a question. If we got up that morning and said, Lord, your will be done, and God moves you on the sideways course, you're going, oh, hey, yeah, this is God. God is leading me into all these different venues and people, and, you know, that's his agenda. I've just moved off of my agenda. I'm no longer uptight because, it's you know, if it's my agenda that's not being done and I'm all upset... You see, if I shouldn't even be upset. I should be living a life that says, God, whatever you're up to today, I'm with you on it. Let's just do it. Can I tell you what happens and why some of us are so uptight? Because some of us in this room, we want to be in control. We want to maintain everything. we got it all figured out. We have it all structured out. And the problem is... That all of our conflicts in life are over who's in control. And we think we've surrendered our lives. We've given our lives to Jesus. But really, it's about what I want to accomplish. And God, would you please help me? Rather than saying, God, I just turn this all over to you, including my life and my, my aims and my, you know, my direction and what's going to happen in my life. I'm just going to trust you with it. So you know what happens when you do that? Here's what happens. I'm pastoring the church. I came back here after, you know, Number of years, and I've been here over 20 years since, and I came back, and I'm a totally different person, totally different headspace, and I say to God, okay, here's how we're gonna do this. I am just here, you're the leader, you're the pastor, you tell me what you wanna do, I'm just a servant, you can tell me to do anything, I'm just gonna go do it. And so the other day I was in a kind of a difficult situation, and I'm praying, I said, Lord, I have this problem. Oop, excuse me, Lord, it's not my problem. Can I just point out to you, Lord, you have a problem? You know? It's your problem. What do you want to do? Just tell me, I'll go do it. But other than that, it's your problem. If you don't tell me, I'm not doing anything because it is your problem. How many think that's kind of a liberating place to be? You're basically saying, God, this is, you know, my life. No, it's your life. What are we doing? And when you start living like this, things start happening that would normally not happen. You're going to be, begin to live now a more extraordinary life. Because you see, what God is looking for is available people. But most of us are too busy for God. We have our own agendas. But if we would lay down our agendas and say, Lord, your will be done. God goes, good. I finally found somebody I can do something with. You see, you know, we keep thinking, I keep, we keep looking at ourselves, and well, how, how can God really use me? God goes, if you could just get out of the way, I could really do it. Right? Okay, some of you know, some of you don't. We'll move on. Wow. I like what he says afterwards. He says, so often we have to water down the word to our level of experience, but now the person in us would insist on bringing our experience up to the level of his word. That's a big problem in our culture today. That's what we're trying to do, bring everything down. Because this is how we're living. We want to make sure we're we're okay. I'm saying, why don't we just open our hearts and say, God, I'm not okay. I want to go up to your level. Do you know when you start living like this, you're going to have tremendous warfare. And you see, Jesus was in the garden and he said, watch and pray so that you would not what? Fall into temptation. And the only person praying in the garden of Gethsemane was Jesus. And the disciples were all sleeping. Guess who's the only person that came out of the garden victorious? Jesus. Let me move on to the third point. What does it mean to see God? You know, first thought is that we're going to see God with our earthly eyes. Well, in Scripture, nobody sees God. You say, well, what about Moses? Yeah, Moses said, I want to see. I'll be satisfied. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to stick you in a rock. I'm putting my hand over your eyes. I'm coming by. You're going to only see the back end of me. And then he says, what's interesting is, what did Moses really see? No, he just heard the attributes of God. He saw the attributes of God. Can I tell you the only people that really see God are the believers? Now, I want you to think about this. It's hard for non-believers to see God. You go, why is that? Because of the condition of their heart. It says, the pure in heart see God. What do, you, what do you mean, Pastor? You know, this expression of seeing God is actually a Hebrew idiom, according to Adam Clark, an 18th century theologian. It speaks of seeing God in his word, in nature, and in history, as it were in everyday life. Ultimately, the pure in heart actually possess God in their lives. You see, when you and I are a pure heart, we're seeing God. We go, hey man, I can see God working in this relationship. Oh man, I can. I, I, I'm driving along. I'm looking at the mountains. I go, oh, man, God, this is so amazing. Look at what you fashioned here. We're seeing God in His creation. We look at the stars. and Go, oh, this is amazing. A lot of other people look at this stuff and go, I don't see God. And I see science. I see all. I see coincidence. You and I are seeing God. You know why? The condition of our heart. To the impure, all things are impure. To the pure, all things are pure. It's amazing. The condition of our heart is a lens by which we see God or don't see God. You know, another group of people that see God is children. Haven't you noticed? Boy, children—they don't have a problem with God. It's when we get older we have all the hang-ups. You know, you talk a little child. You know, this is who Jesus is. You know, down the, and you start talking about Jesus, they go. You want to pray? Sure, absolutely. Let's. You know, they're gonna. You know, you can say bedtime prayers with kids. They don't have any hang-ups. Try doing bedtime prayers with adults. Good luck. You know, a lot of them don't want to pray. Isn't that true? They don't see God. I'm just pointing this out. You know, ultimately, uh, let me just say what Warren Worsby says. He says, the eye sees what the heart loves. I like that quote. The eye sees what the heart loves. If the heart loves God and is single in devotion, then the eye will see God whether others see him or not. And nothing robs the heart of spiritual vision like sin. And I've added from uh, Reese Howell's and self, sin and self impairs our vision of who God is and how He's working. You know, it's interesting. In First John three two, He says, "Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." Isn't that amazing? And all who have this hope in Him purifies themselves, just as He is pure. You know, this morning we were meeting for prayer. You know, I I just love some of the men in our church. You know, they have joined me for over 25 years praying. And and they were praying with me for an hour and 20 minutes this morning before the first service. Isn't that great? We're praying for you. We had a great time. And while I was praying, and we were all praying, and it was just so beautiful, I thought to myself, I had a little epiphany moment. Isn't that great when you have those little epiphany moments? You just go, wow, this is so neat. And I felt like today's service, I said, two things, Lord, I'm asking for. A funeral and a resurrection. A funeral and a resurrection. You go, what's that? I said, you know what? All of us in this room, we have to die. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But when it dies, it bears fruit. I want you to think about this. You know, in our lives, our problem is usually with ourselves. We blame a lot of other things. We can blame the politicians. We can blame the environment. We can blame this. We can blame our spouse. We can blame our kids. We can blame our boss, our teacher, whoever you want to blame. There's a lot of them out there to blame. But when we get down to it, we're creating a life for ourselves. It has a lot to do with the condition of our heart. And, you know, I I've thought a lot about this. You know, when, when you and I are bothered by things, you ever thought about, usually when we're bothered by something, we get upset with the other person come on now, why do, But we ever ask ourselves, but what we should I think be asking ourselves is why is this bothering me? You know what I mean? It, right? Have you thought about that? See, if I am, if I am dead to, to the things of this world, if I'm crucified with Christ, I've thought about it. If I'm a dead person, nothing around me is going to bother me. How many know dead people, things don't bother them? Anybody figure that out yet? A lot of things can be happening around, but it's not really bothering them. So I'm thinking, if I'm really crucified with Christ, why is this bothering me? You know, what's the deal here, God? Because there's something inside of me that needs to die. So I talked about the self-life. You and I have to learn to die daily. That's a very difficult thing to do. But if we say, Lord, you know what? What I really want is to be dead to myself and alive to God. You know what's going to happen? We're going to experience what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, to know him in the fellowship of his suffering, that's dying to things, but then to know him in the power of his resurrection. You see, I believe that the key for you and I to experience this dynamic, powerful, resurrected life, first of all, we've got to die to a few things in our own lives. Amen? Can you see that? And then we can experience this powerful Christian life that's amazing that what God can do with an ordinary person, because God's just looking for ordinary people that are fully yielded to him we have a hard time with that and so you know what you know what consecration is that beautiful word you know we, we've been saying that you know, I you know I consecrate my life to thee it means to lift up your hands and fully surrender and give God everything you are and when you do that that's a conduct that's what you call consecrating yourself and I believe that that would be a, an appropriate way to end the service tonight so I'm gonna have a stand as we close I'm gonna pray And maybe we're here tonight, you know, and I was just thinking regarding probably two areas in our life. The first area is there's some of us in this room and we've just really battled with maybe sin issues in our lives. We've really struggled with that. And how many here, just with your head bowed right now, you just say, you know, Pastor, you know, I just have to be honest with God. Just let's bow our head. I have to be honest with God. I'm the person that's having the 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 double-minded struggle right now that's where I'm at is anybody here that's where you're at just be honest you know and we're gonna pray right now for you that God's gonna unite your heart to fear his name that you're gonna be a single-minded person you're gonna be all over the map you're not gonna be wavering all over the place that's you tonight just keep your hand up okay how many here you can say you know what you know that's not so much my issue pastor but I have to admit when you started talking about self and this idea of having an agenda, I usually get a little out of shape when my agenda goes sideways. Maybe it's about laying down my agenda for my life, my purposes, my goal, my will. And I'm willing to say, okay, God, you're the creator, you designed me. If, I've, if I'm a Christian today, you've, you've saved me for a purpose. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2.10, it says, that you've even prepared good things for me to do in advance. You know, if I am not surrendering myself, I will never walk into your purposes. That's the problem. You know, I I was meditating on my life a little bit. I, I was thinking about, you know, I'm living in Seattle. I graduate from Bible college. And most of my classmates go, we're never leaving this area. And you know, a lot of them never did. And most of them aren't in the ministry. And God spoke to Patty and I and said, I'm calling you to Fort McMurray, Alberta. And I go, Where so you say, well, How'd you come up with that? Well it was a church in our fellowship, They're leading in youth pastor. And you know, I was praying all night to go to Hawaii because they were they were appealing for missionaries to Hawaii. And uh, God goes, No, I'm sending you to Fort McMurray. They go, Really, God? You know, and I moved there in February. My car was not prepared for Fort McMurray, I can guarantee you. No block heater, small battery, everything wrong. No winter clothes, no winter boots. I mean, it just broke at minus 50 the day before we got there. It was still cold, believe me, it was cold. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. But I'll tell you something, if you ask Patty, my wife, two and a half of the most meaningful years, created an incredible relationships, saw people's lives transformed, it was so powerful. Then God says, you know, I've got a people prepared for you. Okay, Lord, I want you to leave here. And he sent me to Red Deer. You know, I, did, I had never been to Red Deer. I didn't even know about Red Deer. See, when I traveled from McMurray to go to Seattle, that was where I was connected, I'd just go down Highway 5. I'd never even bother coming down Highway 2. And all of a sudden, this group of people said, would you come and be our pastor in Red Deer? God, is this the place? Yeah, this is where I want you to go. And I've been here over 30 years. Isn't that amazing? You know? See, and then, you know, I I got my doctorate degree. And I said, Lord, I really believe you asked me to do this. I think you probably have something in mind. And no sooner had I graduated in April than I went to our conference. And this man comes up to me and he says, I need you in India. I need you to help me in India. I've talked to all the pastors in our fellowship. And I said, I need a, a Bible teacher that will help, you know, train you know world-class leaders and your name kept being mentioned by different pastors I need you in India I'll be honest with you I would have never picked India as a place that I wanted to go to at all but I've been there 11 times and the last time you know it was so meaningful students one of them was crying when I left I said pastor please come back you know what do you say to that you know Two of those my students have been martyred because of their faith in Christ and their preaching. I've been humbled by these students. And that work that I've gone to 15 years ago, 11 trips 15 years ago, they had 900 churches. Today, they have 1,800 churches. I said, Lord, thank you for letting me be a part of that. You know, our church has been a part of that. Built an orphanage. I'm going, it's so amazing what God does with your life if you'll just say, okay, God, I'm just going to let you do your thing in my life. And now, this is crazy to me, but you know what? God's opening Germany. I would never pick Germany. I don't know why I'm going to Germany, but we have a missionary and he goes, Pastor, we need you to come and help us there. Would you please come? And I said, okay. On my next trip to India, I'll stop in Germany and I'll do one week in Germany and one week in India. And uh, I have no idea what God's doing. And You know, it, what's really crazy about this? I met a young man on an airplane. He was flying from Edmonton to Montreal. You know where he's from? Germany. And I befriended him and he befriended us. He's not a believer. And we got to know them, and now I'm his Canadian family. Is this amazing? And I'm sharing the gospel. He says, I've never met a Christian before. And we've built this meaningful relationship. So, you know, when I go to Germany, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go visit him and his girlfriend. Because they're like, we're their Canadian family now. What is God doing? God's doing it. I didn't create this. Why am I telling you these little stories? I'm trying to show you that if you will yield to God, he will take you on a journey that you had no idea. You don't even have to figure it out. Stop trying to figure it all out. I can't figure it out. I just go with God, right? How many here say, you know what? I wanna just completely surrender my life to him and let him take me to do his will. And I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna start doing things. You go, really, God's making me do this stuff. It's amazing. I'm shocked, I'm amazed, No. If you asked Patty, when we were poor Bible school students, we would start traveling the world. She'd go, you're nuts. We we never saw that coming. But he's doing it. It's God's work, not mine. Just every head bowed right now. Let's just lift our hands and say, okay, Lord, I give my life to you. I just surrender to you right now. I'm just going to let you have your will in my life. First of all, we're going to start, Lord, by uniting our hearts to fear your name. And number two, Father, we give our lives and we give you permission to be in control of our lives so that we can just live out your design for us, Father, and not be so stressed all the time and hung up about what's going on because every day you have a plan for us and we're just going to flow in your plan. And your plan for us is so much better than our plan. You're so much smarter than us, Lord. You designed us for a reason and a purpose. Help us to fulfill that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this this evening.